grace, mercy, and peace, these blessings, and so many more are yours from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text this evening is the first verse of our gospel lesson from John 13. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now loved them to the end. Dear heirs of our Savior, when a man is facing death and, and knows he is facing death, his thoughts often turn to what will he leave behind and not just the material possessions he'll pass on, but, but a message to those that he loves and that he cares about. In November of 1981, because of cancer, my dad had less than a month to live. We didn't know that, although in hindsight I look back and I believe he did. We were home for Thanksgiving, my sister and I, both from our respective colleges, and I remember sitting next to him in the Thanksgiving morning worship service, and we sang, Now Thank We All Our God, and I listened to him sing with his very loud, monotone, tone-deaf voice, Now Thank We All Our God. The next day after the Thanksgiving festivities on Friday, he took me down the basement and showed me on our old furnace how come summer I'd have to change a pulley on that blower so that it would run at the right speed for the air conditioner versus the heat from the furnace. And he took me out to the garage and showed me where on the wall he had tacked a little sheet of paper and he tracked the oil changes on our 1976 Plymouth Volare. And he told me, make sure you change the oil for mom every 3,000 miles. And then because he, he knew his son, he said, David, don't forget. And then Sunday, before my sister headed back to DMLC and New Ulm, Minnesota, and I headed back to Northwestern in Watertown, he sat the two of us down and he said, I want you to promise me that if mom wants to remarry, you will not stand in her way. Three weeks later, we both came back from college for his funeral. Forty years passed, and I still obviously remember that, because in a sense, that was the legacy that my dad left. A strong faith in God, no matter what the circumstances. Love and care for his family, and especially a selfless love for his wife. We are, we are here tonight. We are here tonight in the upper room with the disciples. And we look at Jesus' deathbed legacy. And some would say, but we need to wait till tomorrow to Good Friday. Because it's on Good Friday and those seven words from the cross that have so much meaning for us. That's Jesus' legacy. Yet you realize that in that upper room on Monday, Thursday, Jesus was already on his deathbed. And he knew that. And what does he offer his disciples? That's what we'll, we'll consider tonight. Ever since Genesis 3, death is the last 
earthly chapter in man's biography. Yet Jesus' death was very unique for any number of reasons, not the least of which is, is this. Listen to the words of our text. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. It's not just that he knew the time of his death, Good Friday afternoon, but he also knew all of the details of what would happen between now in the upper room with his disciples and before he gave up his spirit. In the chapter before this, John, uh, John chapter 12, Jesus had said, Now my soul is troubled. Troubled. Troubled as he looked ahead to his betrayal. Troubled as he looked ahead to his agony in the garden. Troubled as he looked ahead to his arrest and then being mocked and spit upon and the sham trial and his friends fleeing from him and leaving him and denying him. And, and what caused him perhaps the most trouble in his soul is he's the only, not only saw his body hanging on a cross, covered in blood, but he also saw both his body and soul draped in the one thing that he could not stand, covered in sin. And not just any sin, but the world's sin. The sin of Judas' betrayal, the sin of Peter's denial, your sins, my sins, sins of self-centeredness, sins of self-righteous condescension, sins of rage and anger, of lust and greed, sins of lack of contentment. And Jesus saw himself draped in all of those sins, but rather than that diminishing his love for his disciples in that upper room, and his love for us 2,000 years later, it simply intensified his love for his children. What are we told in our text? Having loved his own who were in the world, he now loved them to the end. Loved his, loved his own. At a time when most men's thoughts would have been focused on themselves, on their deathbed, he focused not on himself, but on his own, those that he loved. So what is Jesus' deathbed legacy here in the upper room and until he breathes his last breath in the next day? So, so many things, right? You think of his concern for his disciples. You think of his rather gentle rebuke when they were arguing about who would be greatest. You think of his praying for them and not just for himself, of his warning them that Satan would be tempting them. You think of him standing up in front of that mob and saying, please, let them go. Just take me. But tonight, let's just focus on two. Two parts of Jesus' deathbed legacy. The first, from John 13, that we heard in our gospel lesson. Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. How does this happen? How does the Son of God end up being the, the one person in the room who takes that basin of water and a towel and drops to his knees on that crude floor and scrubs the grime off of everybody else's feet? 
Well, it happens because of sin, because of sinful pride. The Gospel of Luke, we're told that what else happened in this upper room was that a dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. In the upper room, on Jesus' deathbed, it would be like family fighting over the inheritance before mom or dad breathes their last breath in the hospital room. And that's the disciples on Jesus' deathbed. So why didn't they grab that basin of water? Because why would they do that? But as, as strong and as sinful as that pride was, imagine the guilt they must have felt as Jesus made his way around the room and moved from one set of feet to another. Imagine the shame that, that had to overwhelm them as they realized, but, but wait a minute, this is, this is the Son of God. This is the one who calmed storms and fed thousands and raised people from the dead. And now, now he's going to wash my feet? If you were there that night, what would you have said? We know what Peter said. Peter said, No, Lord, you shall never, never wash my feet. And as so often is true with Peter, don't you both admire him, but then also shake your head in disappointment? Admire him because he's the one of the twelve that said, No, Jesus, this is not right. But also cringe. Because what didn't Peter do? Peter didn't say, Jesus, give me this bowl of water so I can wash your feet, even though I believe that Peter would have jumped at the chance to wash his Savior's feet. I think all of the disciples would have fought for that chance, perhaps even Judas. But why didn't anybody speak up? Because Peter and everybody else knew. Peter knew if I take that bowl of water and wash Jesus' feet, I've got to keep going. Jesus' feet, that's fine. But me wash Thomas' feet and James and John? Are you kidding me? That's beneath me. Beneath the disciples, and so often beneath us. Serve God, but of course I will serve God. But wait a minute, serving God means I, I need to, to serve others? Including serving others who don't always love me or have never loved me? Serving others means, means loving others whose opinion is polar opposite of mine? How can, how can Jesus expect me to, to love them? But Jesus didn't just serve the humble. Jesus served the arrogant. Jesus didn't just serve the loyal. He served the traitors and the deniers. Jesus didn't just serve the strong. He served the weak. During his ministry, Jesus didn't serve just those who were like him, a man born of the Jews, but he served those not like him, Gentiles. Jesus didn't just serve the moral, he served the immoral. And this is part of Jesus' deathbed legacy. He offers such a wonderful, humble example of love. We're told in John, Jesus said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master. Then he finishes by saying, A new command I give you, love one another. 
Love one another as I have loved you. The legacy is not that we go home tonight and grab some water and, and, and wash each other's feet, literally. The legacy that he passed on to us is that we, we serve one another, but the service starts with love. And when it starts with love for one another, love for my neighbor, and yes, who is my neighbor? Everyone. When, when I start by loving others, then that service flows naturally out of the legacy that Jesus has left for me. Jesus' deathbed legacy, a wonderful example of love. But then even, even more than that, even better than that. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul describing what happened in that upper room 2,000 years ago. The Lord Jesus, on the, night, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Such familiar words. Words we'll hear in just a few minutes. And because they are so familiar, perhaps for all of us, if not most of us, when we hear those words, we may miss that, that very first phrase. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. You ever wonder why why that night? The night that man was at his worst? Jesus is at his best? On the night that friends and the religious leaders and the world government failed him, Jesus is at his best. One friend sells him out for three months' wages. The rest of them can't run fast enough to get away from Jesus. And then the one that was supposed to be the strongest, not once but three times, says, I don't know this man. The religious leaders, his pastors, if you will, mocked him and sentenced him to death. And then a government that prided itself on justice finds him innocent of any charge, but then has him scourged and, and, and then crucified. On this night, on the night that the world was at its worst, Jesus offers his best. Do you ever wonder why not earlier? Wouldn't it have been more fitting when the disciples had one of their better days? And they had those days. Peter, when he said, Lord, to whom else should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Wouldn't that have been a fitting time to institute the Lord's Supper? What about that same man, Peter, when he said, You are Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said, You are Peter, and on this confession I'll build my church. Then the first Lord's Supper. Or when he commissions the 72 and sends them out two by two. What a wonderful way to, to celebrate their mission trip. But no, Jesus' timing, like God's timing, is always perfect. And so he picks this night, the night he was betrayed, to offer them on his deathbed his last will and testament. And what does he have, what does he have to offer them? He had not accumulated after 30-some years on earth and three years of ministry much of a bank account. He did not have a nice retirement fund or a called worker pension. 
or a half-million-dollar Thrivent life insurance policy. He didn't have a 4,000-square-foot house up in Galilee or a cottage on the waterfront of the Jordan River. He had none of that. So what could Jesus give to his disciples? Only this, himself. And so that is what he did. When he had given thanks, he said, This is my body, which is for you. This is my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. His true body there in the bread and his blood there in the wine. And that's what he gave those disciples. Jesus, the very Son of God, the one they would see in a few hours hanging from a cross, the one they would see in three days coming back into another room, a locked room, and showing them the nail prints on his hands and, and the scar on his side. That Jesus gave those disciples all he had to give. But what a legacy. He offers himself. And so what will you receive tonight in a few minutes? That very same, very same legacy. Jesus' true body given in death for all of your sins and his blood which covers all of your sins. And so what does that mean for us on Monday, Thursday, 2021? 20, it means this, that when your almighty, holy, righteous God looks at you, what does he see? He sees Jesus. He doesn't see your sins, your sins of your youth, your sins of yesterday, your sins of today. He doesn't see your shame and your guilt that robs you of sleep. He doesn't see the bitterness in your heart or the roller coaster of doubt that you so often ride. He sees Jesus. He sees the very Son of God. He sees Jesus, the friend of sinners. He sees Jesus, of whom he had said earlier in Holy Week, this is my Son, with him I am well pleased. And because he sees Jesus tonight, he is so very well pleased with you. Jesus' deathbed legacy, a basin of water and a towel, and a wonderful example of, of love and service. And then, after giving us that, and having nothing else to give you, he gives you himself. And tonight, having that, you have everything that you need. Tonight, cling to Jesus. Crave Jesus. Jesus will never disappoint you. Amen. Please rise.